Welcome back. This is the Prepared Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Austin. Fresh off the trip to Pennsylvania this weekend for the HTA Range Day event. It was epic. Uh, never been to something like that. Never been out that way, honestly. So I've never visited the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, beautiful, by the way. Very, uh, very hilly, very lot mountains, you know, just... Yeah, it was it was gorgeous. Honestly, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to a return trip next year, or possibly even finding an excuse to go back between now and then. But it was it was great. Um, four of us went out. We like we we broke out. We rented an RV. Uh, we made the the RV did slow us down quite a bit, <clears throat> just because they don't move very quick, you know. So it was about six and a half hours uh, each way, and uh, it, it was cool, man. You know, got to hang out, got to meet some really really great people. Um, you know, shout out to, to all the people that they got to hang out with us, uh, you know, Wyatt, Josh, uh, yeah, everybody. Right. Um, I took the, uh, Orion training group CQB course. That was a day and a half of just, uh, you know, working the shoot house with Mantis units and, and sim rounds, uh, both John and Josh enrolled and took the day and a half, uh, small unit tactics course, uh, with Blake and Alex. And then Steve was with us and he was the only one that actually took like multiple courses, but he got to go do a red, uh, pistol red dot class. He got to do a medical course, um, and then got to spend, uh, you know, the half day on Sunday with, uh, with our homie chance doing the uh, vehicle combatives class that he was running, um, which is, was awesome. You know, we, we packed some really good food. We had some lamb, we had some steak, you know, met some really, really awesome people hanging out, watching the night shoot and stuff. Uh, Chance did a really awesome demo on some night vision stuff, so I got to like actually see and ex- like experience the difference between uh, civilian power lasers and full power lasers. It was awesome, really, really great trip. Uh, didn't get a lot of sleep, but that's okay because I learned a whole hell of a lot. But uh, getting into what we're doing um, this week, because we'll talk more about that in the future, we definitely have discussions coming uh, on everything we learned from the classes, like a like a debrief episode, if you will. And uh, Josh and I are going to get into all of that. But this week, this week on this episode, I am talking with Sam, uh, or as you guys may know him better uh, on YouTube and Instagram as Prep Medic. So he's a uh, you know SWAT medic, flight medic, uh, got probably some of the coolest jobs that are out there in the world. And we're going to get into all sorts of good stuff with Sam. Uh, I've been working on getting him on the pod for a while, but you know, people are busy, man. It just, it's just how things work out. So I'm... Um, uh, ready to jump at the opportunity to sit down and eat up a little bit of his time and kind of see how he got where he's at. And we get into all kinds of stuff, I'm sure. And I think you guys are really, really going to dig it. But, you know, before we get on over to my discussion uh, with Sam for this week's interview, I have to say thank you to our sponsors that make this podcast possible. Uh, things like the trip to HTA would not be possible without our sponsor support. So, uh, first and foremost, thank you to our Patreon patrons. Um, you guys, without your support, we would definitely not be able to do the kind of things that we do. And we'll have tons more content out there than you, you know, aside from what you guys see on our Instagram and here, here on the podcast, there's even more It's available on our Patreon. You guys can go head over there. You can sign up, you can support everything that we're doing here, get access to exclusive episodes, uh, you know, long form videos, blogs, targets, drills, all kinds of good stuff going on over there at the Patreon. So head over and check that out. But we do also have some really, really badass business partners that are sponsoring this podcast. And first on that list, we have to say thank you to is Custom Night Vision. Guys, Custom Night Vision is your one stop shop if you are looking to get into the night vision game. 
there were so many guys at the HTA event running around with nods, but there were an equal amount, probably even more, that didn't have them. They were checking out the night vision demo. They're asking me questions. Hey, where'd you get your binos? What's going on with this and stuff? And I was happy to tell them I got mine a custom night vision. They have everything that you guys need to get yourself set up and squared away with your first you know, PVS 14 just talked to somebody last night who's actually looking at going into one of the Tonto housings and wants to get the die show bridge. So he can actually buy two Tontos, bridge them together, make himself a nice set of uh, Bino night vision. And then that's actually, that unit is actually designed to break apart into two separate monocular pieces. So you and your wife or you and your best buddy can, you know, rock those, uh, or you can put them together if you want to run binoculars. Uh, they have tons of offerings on there, you know, Elbit tubes, Photonis tubes, L3. And if you guys don't know what those mean or what those are, the site has a built-in chat function. You can reach out to the team over at Custom. You can ask them the questions. You can share your concerns. You can help, let them help you figure out what the best choice for you is and why. Maybe it's a PVS-14. Maybe it's a Tonto. Hey, maybe you got, you know, some money stashed away and you've been working at this for a couple of years and you finally got a big wad of cash to go drop on some binocular night vision. Do you want some 1431s? Do you want some RNVGs? Do you want some DTNVSs? There's a whole lot to it, but the guys that custom night vision are there to support you and help you on your journey. And they also carry OpsCore, Team 1D helmets, mounts, lasers, flashlights, optics. You guys can literally make custom your one-stop shop for everything you need for night vision. So you can literally log in. I would say walk in, but log on, fill your cart, get everything squared away, order it, have it delivered to you, and you'll be ready to rock and roll. The helmet, the mount, the night vision itself, of course, the laser units, the flashlights that go with it, and a whole hell of a lot more. Customnightvision.com. You guys head on over and check it out today. Big thanks to them for all of their support. Additionally, I have to say thank you to HRT Tactical Gear. Guys, like I just said, I ran the CQB class for a day and a half. And I got to say, man, the LBAC carrier from HRT, it stood up wonderfully. Now, full disclosure, that wasn't running with full mags. Just for safety reasons, it was a dry class, so I didn't have the extra weight of the ammunition. But from a sheer comfort perspective, I had absolutely no problems, no hot spots. Loved the carrier. Got a bunch of questions from people. Got comments, and you know, they liked the design. They hadn't seen it before. You know, hey, what kind of carrier is that? Let them know it's the LBAC. You know, uh, HRT is making great, great products, aside from the LBAC, right? The rack, the A-Track carriers, the Maximus placard, their ARC belt, which actually the ARC belt was there, too. The Arc Belt was one of the raffle prizes that uh, HRT donated at the HRT, or I'm sorry, at the, uh, if I can get my words together, HTA Range Day event. So HRT donated to HTA. So it was nice to see them donating and a lot of people donating money to get raffle tickets to try and win their Arc Belt setup. It's a nice Tigris belt, inner outer belt setup. Very rigid, very good stuff there. You guys head on over to hrttacticalgear.com, see everything they got going on today. Huge thank you as well to our friends over at 100 Concepts. Uh, it's funny because you could actually probably easier count the number of rifles at the HTA event that didn't have the 100 Concepts light caps on rifles that, um, than the ones that did. Everybody I saw, everybody I talked to, every blaster I saw see that they had a light on it anyways was running their light caps. These things are so freaking popular in the market and they just dropped their shock collar system. So if you're one of those people out there, you were kind of on the fence, the Ranger Band thing just really wasn't doing it for you. Now they have a solution out there to address that. 
Additionally, you can head over to 100concepts.com. You can check out the scope caps. You can check out their new pro caps that they released, their hex caps. Very good for anti-reflection. Pack scrim, helmet scrim, their chem light kit, key silencer, all kinds of good options. Head on over to 100concepts.com. Do good, be dangerous, and live free. And finally, shout out to LARP Labs. Guys, head on over to LARPLabs.com. You can use discount code PREPAREDMINDSET for 10% off your order when you go to pick up some of their Computer Cut 3M vinyl wraps. This is the same kind of vinyl they're using on outdoor competitive rock crawlers. It takes a absolute beating, guys. It's not that sticker crap where you're just gonna you know get some sticky goop around the edges and they're gonna peel and you're gonna get air pockets and things like that this stuff is not that this is 3m vinyl it is no joke and they have wraps in every color every camo every pattern you can think of for your eotech your your aim points your vortex uh hollow sun sig so many options on the site again head on over to larplabs.com use discount code prepared mindset for 10 percent off your order so big, big shout out, you guys, to all those companies that support us. Go check them out. Buying from them, A, you're supporting fantastic companies that are doing outstanding work. You're putting food on those people's table. And it's also helping to support us here at Prepared Mindset. Now, getting back to the discussion at hand this week, I am joined by Sam. Like I said, you guys might know him better from, you know, he's a plethora of videos. It's the best word for it. A plethora of videos on YouTube under the name prep medic a lot of you guys have probably seen he's done a lot of gear breakdowns uh, both talking about his personal gear uh, his work gear and that's again as a flight medic as a SWAT medic he's done a lot of different things and brings a lot of different uh, knowledge to this discussion today so I'm very much looking forward to the opportunity to sit down like I said steal some of his time and uh, hear his story and and what he has to share with all of you so it should be a really really good discussion I I'm positive y'all are going to dig it. And without any further delays for me, I'm going to go ahead and bounce this on over to my chat with Sam. Here we go. Sam, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for making the time and, and jumping on with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dude, I'm I'm kind of excited. Uh, I followed your channel on YouTube for a while. I uh, didn't understand a lot of what you were talking about uh, at, when I first found you. Uh, my medical knowledge is, uh, it's still actually kind of lacking. Uh, but definitely when I found your channel, I had no idea what most of the stuff you were talking about was, but I uh, was still very intrigued. And now that I actually have an idea about things like, like I didn't realize that, you know, SWAT teams actually had medics or there were dedicated medics and stuff that their job was just to be in a helicopter and, you know, the, the lengths to which all that goes. So uh, this should be very interesting and uh, enlightening <laughs> for me. Um with that, uh, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself, man, because uh, I know you got a lot going on and uh, you do a lot of cool stuff. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I work primarily, I'm a, a flight paramedic on a medical helicopter out in northern Colorado. Uh, that's kind of my full-time job. Um, I've got a fair amount of experience uh, going back in the EMS about 12 years. Um, I worked as a reserve sheriff's deputy on an entry team. Uh, as their medic, uh, I've been, a, uh, we call it a special operations response team um, out here in Colorado, which does um, SWAT medicine for two relatively high call volume SWAT teams, as well as uh, cert we attach to search and rescue, uh, dive rescue, and then we deploy on most of like the high angle rescues uh, that go on basically any, any special situation um, that comes up that a, a regular ambulance paramedic might not be equipped to 
to handle. And then uh, on top of that, I run the YouTube channel uh, Prep Medic, which started about uh, five years ago, just to try to bring some form of medical preparedness to you know whoever is willing to watch it and, and learn, because it's one of those things that like in nobody's hands is medical knowledge and good practice, CPR, bleeding control, uh, mm-hmm. a bad thing. And then I also hope to, you know, recruit people into EMS because I found a great career in it. Um, but like just about every industry out there right now, we're hurting for people. So it's kind of a, a three-tiered thing uh, for me on that. Yeah. And I, I've had friends that go the EMS route. I know I, they, I've heard the stories, um, you know, here in Michigan, I know we're also hurting for people and uh, when they explain just how the shifts work and and the coverage and and everything that goes with that, like I, I feel for you guys because that's it's not the most flexible of professions. Um, and I think you maybe posted something uh, a day or two, something like now maybe it was a while ago. I don't know, but I'm getting out of here. <clears throat> is that like when I get to the end of my day and I work in finance, and it's like oh, it's the end of the day, and like oh, this like last minute email comes in. I'm like, mm, you're you know what tomorrow tomorrow i'll just write about that tomorrow but when you guys get a call at the end of shift or whatever uh you know it's not like a, oh well i'm sure somebody else will get it because that's somebody's that's somebody's life so it's not right. that's not really the thing you can do you don't really, you don't really get that option i'm sure right i mean today's a good example i got off work about two hours late just because we got something at 4 30 a.m and you'd think getting off at 8 8 a.m is our shift change and and I've been off two hours late just because things snowballed and we ended up doing a lot of stuff. So, so yeah, it can definitely be, it can definitely be inflexible. However, you know, working two days a week, getting the rest of the, the week off to do hobbies, like, you know, mm-hmm. run a YouTube channel, do things like that, man, uh, you can't beat that in some ways. I'd, I'd probably die in a nine to five. Yeah. I, you, uh, that's what I've found is that people like, like, I don't love my nine to five, but I, I'm like used to it and it's like my thing, you know, um, and then I have friends that, that work a different kind of schedule and they're like, if I had to do a nine to five, uh, you know, I just, I wouldn't, I'd be crawling the walls and stuff. Uh, so how did you, uh, how did you end up, uh, as a, a like a flight medic? Um, cause like I have, I have friends that are in EMS and I have a buddy actually here in Detroit that's working at one of the trauma centers, uh, at, as a nurse and, uh, just talked about a barbecue like three weeks ago. He's like, yeah, I want to end up as a flight medic. I go, Oh, have you ever checked out this YouTube channel <laughs> and, uh, and sent your, your stuff on over to him. Um, but how did you get into all of that? Yeah. I mean, so like my, my path into EMS started in high school. Um, I really wasn't engaged with the academic scene, unless it had some kind of real world, uh, uh, relevance I found, you know, it was hard for me to sit down and, you know, study that math equation just because you should know it. Um, and there's definitely things I wish I would have paid attention to because I had no idea it would actually be relevant, but, you know, high school me, I was thinking, man, I just, I don't like any of this. So I, I started in ski patrol, um, because I like to ski and I wanted a free lift ticket and I thought some first aid certification would be kind of cool. You know, it's one of those things that kind of helps all the time, you know, like to hike, you know, you should know some first aid, that kind of thing. So got started in, in ski patrol and like uh, a lot of people do is kind of exposed me to mentors, people that were paramedics, firefighters, police officers. Um, and that kind of sucked me into this world that was like, I, I tell people it's kind of like having the uh, the white collar respectable job when you go to a dinner party, but mm-hmm. you're still 
kind of a blue collar worker um, through it. So you get kind of this, the both the best of both worlds, in my opinion, um, in, in EMS. So got my EMT, got my paramedic, worked for like seven years out in Iowa, uh, did the law enforcement thing, the SWAT medic thing out there, moved out to Colorado with my wife um, and worked on the ground ambulance here in Colorado. And then, you know, with... You basically get onto flights. It's it's a lot of people's goals. Um, it's very competitive for every like one position. You're getting like 50 applicants. So you need a lot of experience. You need like board certifications, um, kind of your alphabet soup of certifications. And, you know, applied twice, got in the, the second time and have been doing that for about three years now uh, out here. And if you ask me, this is one of the best states to to be a flight medic just because of the scenery and the mountains and all of that going on all the outdoor activity that as tragic as it is it keeps us busy but those are kind yeah. of the fun the fun flights to do well i'm sure you know here in michigan we don't really get a ton of that we're i mean i'm sure the northern part of the state does but where i'm at here in southeast michigan it's very flat it's probably some of the most boring stuff you would i mean to, at least to look at but I, I don't know i assume we probably have some interesting stuff with the crime rates and everything again unfortunate <laughs> you know uh it keeps you busy. So, um, so uh, you said it's like one out of every 50 applicants gets the opportunity to do that. Is this kind of something that a lot of people that you found are, are actually really interested in, just don't know how to get to it? Um, or is it really just that it's so limited because, you know, as a, a helicopter probably services, you know, one helicopter to however many medical centers and things like that? Yeah. I mean, like, for example, in, in Northern Colorado, we're fielding, I think my company alone is fielding something like 40 to 50 ambulances a day uh, in this region, each one staffed by two providers. Um, you know, we've got a staff of over a thousand um, providers. And then uh, everybody kind of wants to go to flights because, you know, helicopters are cool. You get more serious stuff more often. You know, you're not dealing yeah. with the toe pain at 2 a.m. Nobody calls a helicopter for that. So we still do our fair share of like, BS, I'll call it, but like, it, it's just kind of a, a a step up for a lot of people. So there's a lot of competition to get into it. And then on, on top of just like, you know, a little bit of a pay raise, a better schedule, um, all of that, you also get a lot more autonomy on, on what you're doing. So it's not quite as mother may I for a lot of these procedures, you know, we're doing surgical procedures. We've got a huge pharmacology, a lot of really cool tools to intervene, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So it, it's very competitive uh, in that aspect. But it's also hard because you need a lot of experience and the average life expectancy in the career, not like life life um, yeah. for a paramedic is about, I, I think it's like average is like three to five years. Wow. Uh, and five years is our absolute minimum requirement to get hired. You, we won't even look at your application before five years in a busy 911 system. And most of us come in with 10 plus uh, before you get even looked at. So, yeah, you know, it just kind of the field kind of weeds itself down uh, on its own. And so, and is that, have you, I mean, I know in like corporate America, and this is maybe something that bleeds over into other places too, is like, you know, oh, you have to have this degree, you have to have all this, you know, they want XYZ certifications and things. Would you say it's probably an appropriate amount of experience given what you've seen and everything? Or is it just something that they look at to try and weed out the number of applicants due to the how desirable the position is? 
I, you know, I think it's appropriate. You know, we, there are some flight services that hire newer providers. Um, I, three years is pretty much the minimum you're going to see because that's what we need for accreditation. Um, but you get some that hire less and like, it's hard to justify that when you're being like, you're on your own, you're with, we all fly with a nurse and a medic and you're going out there doing procedures that the only other providers that are doing them are physicians. So like we're doing rapid sequence intubation, which is anesthesia. We're paralyzing them, uh, sedating them, intubating them. We are doing um, finger thoracostomies, cutting into their chest to release air, uh, chest tubes, which is the same thing. We're doing surgical airways. Um, You know, we're carrying over, you know, 120 different meds on the aircraft. We can run labs. We've got blood transfusions. So like a lot of things that are great for patients, but can also really mess somebody up if they're done wrong. Um, So you kind of need that experience coming into it uh, to really be a safe and effective provider. You can fit all of that on a helicopter? Yes. Yes, we can. And we all have to be a certain size to fit it on. You know, we all have weight requirements with all our gear. We get weighed every week, kind of... uh, UFC weigh-in style, you know, and if you go over your, your flight weight, then you're, mm-hmm. I mean, you're kicked to the curb. They got somebody that can come in and sit in your seat. That's rough. That's rough. That makes you think twice about that pizza. You know I mean? That's, that's it, gotta be a little nerve wracking. You know, it's rough, but at the same time, I like having that standard. Uh, and you know, it's an easily enforceable standard. Like I get it. Like, you know, 10 pounds isn't the difference between, you know, a super healthy person and not, you know, there's, unfortunately there's some bodybuilders and some big dudes that really want to do flights that just can't because they weigh too much. But, uh, I think it's a good standard to have just because it does kind of, uh, uh, inflict fitness on, on us, uh, regardless of what it is. And, you know, I think we see that a lot with first responders is, I mean, you have to be fit. In my opinion, you have to have a level of fitness or at least be working towards it because a lot of what we do is super physical, not all the time, but, but sometimes it is. So, you know, with that, that's one of those things that I'm, I'm a okay with it. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. It it definitely does. I, I just, it's one of those things I'm sure that just compounds the stress a little bit of, you know, when you look at the job and everything, (laughs) but, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, I remember, uh, I teach high school marching band and I remember one of our seniors, we had years and years ago at their like band camp bonfire. They go around to each kid and like, what do you want to do? And this kid, uh, he was a great kid, super good kid. Hey, I want to be a pilot. And I, I, and I remember not because he said he wanted to be a pilot, but because the director, um, looked at him and goes, you know, they have weight requirements for those jobs, right? Oh. Dude, oh. Like, not cool. Um, and I, like, I didn't say anything, but, it just really stuck with me. And he got to give that guy the, 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 the fuck you about four and a half years later when he graduated from college and dropped like 65 pounds and was actually able to get into a piloting position. I forget what he was doing, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? The vehicle can yeah. only lift so much and, and do, do so much, but um, at any rate, so once you got to, you, you applied, right? You said your second time you got in. Was, how much training did you have to go through after that? You know, like, hey, now I can, I got the job. Do you have to go through, like, I assume there's flight training and all this uh, additional stuff they put you through. What does that look like? Yeah, we are, our training period lasts about six months. Um, so, you know, you're already kind of top of your game. You're already kind of top of your game. Sorry about that. Dogs, dogs getting mad about something silly. 
Um, and then you have to go and uh, sit through academy. You're already kind of at the top of your game. And then you come in and we have to basically go back to school. So they set you through. We did, I think ours was like a three-week academy with they bring in physicians from different specialties to lecture. Um, you get hands-on with the new equipment you might not be familiar with. And then um, you basically go and you do clinical time. So, you know, we went through OB and you have to deliver X number of babies. And then you have to go to ICU and you have some objectives you have to fill there. Um, you know, the the paramedics don't have to go to um, the ambulance and the nurses don't have to go to whatever floor they were on before. But mm -hmm. we just kind of switch, switch out. So the nurses are going uh, on a ground ambulance learning how to be paramedics, essentially. And we're learning how to be nurses. So... Uh, and then we go to the OR and get a bunch of airways, shadow anesthesia, anesthesia for uh, a couple days and intubate people and do all the things they do, manage meds. So, you know, it's a long process. And then you get like SIMS every uh, so often. And it's not uncommon for people to wash out um, just because you're being watched by your medical director, who's a, a physician all the time. And then at any point, he can pull the plug and just say, nah, this person isn't isn't spooled up enough, isn't getting it. And yeah. And kind of bump you back down from a, from a flight perspective. What do they have you guys do? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's specialized training with the, the helicopter, um, the gear and things like that. Is that, I assume that's, that's built into the whole, uh, that six months that you were talking about. Yeah. So we do function as like ancillary flight crew, um, military members will like kind of do the crew chief duties, uh, okay. ish. So we're, you know, we're kind of looking out for the pilot and, looking for obstructions. We have to get NVG time um, to become yeah, certified on our night vision goggles. You know, yep. it sounds super cool. And and I've got my own like monocular at home that I like going to the range with, but like nothing ruins NVGs, like doing it professionally. Because all it is, is <laughs> it's just a headache. Your head's heavy. You just yeah. want to take them off. You know, at first I was like, all gung-ho, you know, put them down. They have really nice goggles and, you know, looking at everything yeah. now, it's like, we're always kind of like, well, do you, do you need us to wear them on this one? Do you, mm -hmm. it, but uh, so we do that. We fly into the mountains. We do some practice landings, loads and stuff, but a lot of, a lot of the flight stuff is kind of done on the job with your partner and the pilot. Uh, and the pilots are kind of responsible for making sure that, you know, the safety measures of the aircraft and all of that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure by, by comparison, it kind of has to ruin the night vision for you too. Cause I know aviation grade tubes are like, I got to play with some this weekend at an event I was at. I was like, man, these are, these are incredible. This is amazing. And I put mine back on. I'm like, oh yeah. Like, right. <laughs> uh, like, you know, if, if you have two lower end units that are comparable, you're like, oh, I can't tell the difference. But then when you jump up to something really nice, it's like, oh wow. Yeah. This is different. So, yep. Uh, but still cool. You could actually, well, I mean, I would still think it's cool, but like you said, I'm sure when you just date out, it's, it, it does weigh a little bit on you. You're like, eh, not again, but I get it. Uh, so uh, with that, I mean, where at what point in all of this did you end up uh, connecting with the, the sheriff's department and kind of taking that, uh, let's say, that route in your career as well? That's, that's been an interest for a while. And in Iowa, they had two SWAT teams, low call volume, like it was rural, it was rural Iowa, but neither one of these SWAT teams had medics on them. So um, traditionally, what we saw, like in, say, Columbine is kind of the best known case is that... Mm -hmm. Uh, EMS is the first thing you learn in school is scene safety. So if it's not safe for you, you don't want to go in because you don't want to be, you know, the next casualty. You don't want to right. take a rescuer off the board and, um, uh, also not be able to help anybody. So 
Um, they teach scene safety, which was used at Columbine, where all the paramedics sat back and the SWAT team kind of dilly-dallied and they, they kind of all stood back from the scene um, because it was a new precedence. It hadn't really happened up until that point. And what we saw was that people were laying on the ground and there are people dead in Columbine that would be alive today if they had gotten care faster. So the paradigm started to shift. Um, a lot of EMS agencies started getting what's called a rescue task force. So they're not armed, but they wear a helmet, they wear a vest, um, and then they get bodyguards. So the uh, police officers that aren't in the initial contact teams will start bringing paramedics into the scene or firefighters, whoever it is, and they're going to start dragging out who's ever shot uh, and getting care really quickly. And then uh, one step further is kind of the SWAT medic role, which I've been filling for a while. That's, you know, a medic attached to the team. And the primary responsible responsibility is, you know, the, the team itself, their, their care. But then if they get in a situation, you know, even if they, you know, shoot the suspect and that's the only person that's injured, you know, you're right there to under care. Uh, mm -hmm. For them, you know, any civilians that might be hurt, you know, even, you know, canines. So I I kind of saw the need there and got on as a reserve deputy sheriff, uh, which is, you know, you go through like training over the course of a year that roughly equals the state's uh, police academy. And you just go, you know, every couple weekends, you get a lot of ride times, uh, uh, time with the, the agency that's sponsoring with you. So I did that. And then basically they would have us like, you know, out at football games, do special events for them. And you're an armed sworn law enforcement officer with all the same rights and responsibilities, but you're not paid for it. Um, and then oh, cool. with that, I kind of, I, exactly. <laughs> I, I kind of made it known that I wanted to get on, like the whole reason I was doing it was to get on the SWAT team, uh, tried out for that, uh, got on there and was able to kind of build a tactical EMS team from the ground up, which like right now in Iowa, my buddy is, is still on and, uh, doing those responsibilities. So got started there. And then, um, my wife, uh, decided to move back here. So, uh, this is closer to home for her. Colorado is kind of cooler than Iowa. So came out and then picked an agency that had a special operations response team, um, and have been, you know, doing that ever since with, the the sheriff's office and the police department here. So does that in that role uh, as fulfilling that role specifically as the medic? So is that something like what you had just said a moment ago where you're not armed when you go in or do you have to go through the training, the shooting like uh, you would go through, I don't know, CQB training. Right. And you would have right. to learn all the same things everybody else would. But you're just additionally cross trained as a medic. Yeah. So in Iowa, we were, um, they said shooters first, medic second. So we were entry team. We were all armed, trained the same way um, because we were law enforcement. Uh, out here in Colorado, we are unsworn. Uh, we're part of a hospital-based system. So we attach, but we're not we're not armed. We've got all the armor. We look the part. Um, we go through their SWAT school that they do for all of their new officers. We do all their physical requirements, but um, we don't carry, you know, on the scene, which you know, it has, I, I have feelings about and it definitely has its, its drawbacks uh, predominantly, yeah. but you know, they, we train with them a lot. They kind of know how to utilize us and, you know, we can, we're in with them. We can go in the stack with them, all of that. Uh, and they'll just, you know, make sure they, they cover up for us. One advantage of that is as small as the advantages are, is that, you know, that's our one responsibility. we we don't have to be in the firefight. There can be a firefight going and we can be taking care of their officers. 
um, and we're not kind of a we're, we're not a net loss for them from guns from the fight. Yeah. So that, I, I assume then, OK, if it you're not carrying a rifle or something, right, um, it just frees up the ability to carry more gear, medical kit, things like that, and just be more effective, like you said, in that application as they train around deploying you guys in those different you know scenarios and things. Yeah. Yeah. And like, to be clear, I'd love to be armed there, but, you know, hospital risk departments, they're not about that. They saw a, a video of our ambulance. We do fire line deployments as well. And they saw like a video of our ambulance driving right next to like a, a hundred foot wall of flame. And yeah. they almost shut us down right there. They're like, you're doing what? Your people are where? So we kind of keep our, we keep our involvement uh, as far back as, as we can from the paper pushers in, yeah. in our establishment. That's just crazy. I mean, I get it. Like, the, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I get it. Like the liability piece is huge, uh, you know, uh, but people get hurt in dangerous situations, thus requiring medical attention in said dangerous situations, including but not limited to wildfires and things like that. And I don't, how do you kind of bridge the gap there? You just got to kind of do your best to, to tiptoe the line or uh, I don't know. That's got to be a tough one, man. I mean, you don't really hear just because we're part of a, you know, I think our hospital system's like a $13 billion hospital system right now. And we're a, we're a oh, wow. team of 20 people. And so they're used to managing, you know, 50,000 nurses, you know, they're used to managing these docs and respiratory therapists and stuff. And they kind of look at EMS and they don't, they don't really know what the job is. They, they think ambulance driver, which is like mm -hmm. the racial slur of first responder world for, for EMTs and paramedics when somebody calls you an ambulance driver. Uh, um, so, you know, in this case, it's one of those things you kind of just put your head down, you do your work and you hope they don't notice you too much. Yeah. So as you've been doing all this, you know, moving through your career with the different experiences and everything you learn, obviously a shitload, seeing a whole bunch. Um, five years ago, I think you said, right. You started the YouTube channel. Um, yep. you know, are with your interactions with people and just what you're observing out there in the world, do you think that the medical information that's being put out today, let's say just in mass in social media, not even necessarily just what you're putting up, but in mass, do you feel like it is, it's being pushed out enough or are we still missing the mark with things? I feel like we still, it's better than it was, you know, when I got into shooting and stuff, you know, eight years ago and even five years ago, right. Uh, where people were saying, Oh, we have a tourniquet. So I'm set to go. Um, and now you see people with more like blowout kits and stuff, but do you think that there's enough out there right now? People are really actually understanding how, how deep some of this can go. You know, not yes and no. I think we are, we are leaps and bounds from where we were even five years ago. Um, you know, there's a big emphasis on medicine. Even people that are not medically oriented are trying to put a, a emphasis on medicine. I think there is a lack of good information. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, not taking away from anybody's experiences, but there's a lot of people that, you know, were something, you know, they, they used to be, you know, in the military, they went through combat lifesaver, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years yeah. ago. And, you know, they're sharing that information now, which is great. I appreciate the attempt, but there's, the information is not always valid and it's really hard to it's really hard for somebody that's not medically trained to look at medical information and vet it. Um, it's hard to vet your instructors when, you know, they hold this or that certification when they, you know, did this, like 
you know, somebody says, Hey, I'm, I'm a special forces medic and you're, you're going to trust them if you don't know any better. But what I think is, is kind of swept under the rug is that medicine changes. Um, you know, I've been a paramedic for a little over 10 years, was an EMT before that ski patrol before that. And like, from what I was taught originally in school to what we're doing now, at least in terms of trauma care is completely different. Um, and it's not because, you know, you, you kind of, new studies come out, new practices come out. Like, you know, 20 years ago, we were told, Hey, if you put a tourniquet on their limb, they're going to lose the limb. And that's totally false. Yeah. Uh, that, that doesn't really exist. <laughs> you know, people, people were taught in, in combat lifesaver, you know, to throw tampons and wounds. We know now that's, that's bull crap. You know, we use tourniquets as like a primary, as a primary, uh, intervention instead of, you know, when I was taught it was direct pressure. If that doesn't work, go to a pressure point, then raise their hand above their head then if that doesn't work, then you can do a tourniquet. And now it's like, hey, do you have life-threatening bleeding on that extremity? Throw the tourniquet on. So mm-hmm. I, the information's there if you know where to look. It's just difficult to find to find the right information. You know, the resources, obviously, you know, I'll, you know I try to put out, out stuff there. But, you know, in addition to that, like a lot of what I teach is just the curriculum that uh, Stop the Bleed is putting out, mm-hmm. which is a uh, organization uh, made by the DOD. Uh, that was a response to a uh, school shooting that basically these physicians came together. And they're like, Hey, what's an apolitical way that we can save lives in these situations? You know, how, how can we make a difference right now that people aren't going to get mad at it and uh, stop the bleed came of it, which is, you know, training anyone to place tourniquets, to pack wounds, to put direct pressure on recognize life-threatening bleeding and go from there. And that's not just like a tactical situation. That's the motorcyclist that loses their leg. That's, you know, somebody puts their arm through a plate glass window. You know, they, you can find all kinds of videos on, on people hurting sure. themselves in stupid ways. Um, so like, that's a great resource. Stop the bleed. You can Google it. It'll, it'll pop right up. A lot of fire departments um, put that out. And then like CPR training, you know, as, as basic as that sounds like that's, that's, where it's at. That's really good resources for that. Anybody can learn. Uh, and they're free or very close to free. Yeah. And I know, uh, we had it at my, well, okay. Pre lockdowns when people were still in the office all the time, uh, they actually brought uh, red cross in to do a free CPR training. And it was literally, Hey, you can sign up for it. Costs you nothing. You, if nothing else, you got to work for two hours. Uh, I was actually really surprised. There was like seven people that showed up out of a building of, or at least our two floors in that building anyways of like, I don't know, over a hundred people. And we had seven and one of them drove over from another building to get to it. I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I don't know. I think people kind of uh, in general, and I mean, it's one thing in this community, but obviously even outside the tactical community, uh, and I hate using that word, but I don't know what else to call it. Right. right. Uh, people just kind of assume they're never going to need medical uh, knowledge of any variety CPR or tourniquet, whatever, even the very, the base stuff, or even where's your defibrillator at in your building? It's always hilarious. Uh, I've been to three classes through work and every time they go, Hey, do you know what this is? We go, yeah, that's your, it's the defibrillator or whatever. And like, okay, where's it, you know, where's it located? And I'm guilty too. I was like, I have no idea. I have, I have no freaking clue where it's at. Uh, You assume it's never going to be a thing until it is. Yeah. And then you're screwed. What? You know, we, we live in a very, like, we live in a very cushy society. You know, we've got as, as many issues as there are, we have a very built out emergency response system, you know, pretty much in any town in America, you call 911, you can get police, ambulance and a fire truck within a reasonable amount of time. 
Um, and for a vast majority of calls, like that's what you need. And that's what people have seen is, you know, they get in a car wreck, they break their arm, they call an ambulance, it gets there, everything's fine. Um, so it's really easy to be lulled into complacency through it. And, you know, having done this for a while, you know, what you see time and time again is you see victims and like bad things happen to people that are prepared, but like there's kind of this different, this different mindset um uh, of of people that get hurt that just didn't realize it would it could happen to them and they don't realize the breakdowns of the system that happen regularly so you know what i tell people is that in my career you know i've got probably on two hands i can count the number of cpr saves i've had that the person has walked out of the hospital neurologically intact um mm -hmm. But all 10 of those have in common, or more right or less, somewhere around there, all of them have in common that bystander CPR was performed prior to our arrival. I've never seen somebody walk out of the hospital where a bystander didn't do CPR. And that's because your brain starts dying almost instantly when you go into cardiac arrest. So if somebody can go down, start CPR, even if they're not doing mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, just pressing on the chest and until EMS gets there, like that single-handedly can save the life more than anything I have on the helicopter or the ambulance or in my aid bag. Um, like that's the most important thing. And it, and thinking about it, like the average response time in the U S in a city is like five minutes. And yeah. after five minutes have passed, if nobody's done anything, like we all know it when somebody like comes over the radio, they're like, Hey, somebody's going cardiac arrest responding to this uh, bystanders refusing to do CPR or uh, no CPR is ongoing. Like we all know, like we're going to go put on a show for 40 minutes trying to resuscitate them, but we all know it's not going to happen. Jeez. Um, and it, it, and that's something people don't think about. And then with like bleeding control, you know, you bleed out of your femoral artery in two to four minutes. Once again, the average response time is five minutes. So if there's no intervention, that person's dead. Like right. there's, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, and, and five minutes is, that's a good response time. Like that's, that's awesome. If you're in a small rural community that has a volunteer agency or something like that could Ooh, be yeah. 15, 20 minutes. We had a lot of places in Iowa where they would utilize us as their ALS resource. And we would take 20 minutes to get to them driving lights and sirens. So, you know, with all of that, like, I think it's easy to be complacent, but you have to realize that there are the system breaks down very fast. And even in Northern Colorado, where we're built out, we've got tons of ambulances on the street. Like they hit level zero every day, which means that they hit a state where all ambulances are busy on other calls. And either you're going to hold and wait for an ambulance to become available from the hospital, or they're going to send an ambulance from another territory that will take upwards of 20 minutes to get to you. And that happens daily. Like that's not like a, a, rare occurrence yeah. that's that's yeah. all the time and that's you know that's pretty common in almost every municipality in the u.s so as built out as we are it, you have to take some of this into your own hands and it's just not done yeah well i mean and it I, I feel like we we we've seen forward progress you know oh yeah uh, absolutely it's gotten better and there's certainly been things that um have made it easier you know uh, from influencers or people like yourself or people like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw out like Lucas from T-Rex Arms. He was one of the people that really, at least from my perspective, right, really pushed carry a tourniquet. If you carry a gun, you should carry a tourniquet like it's easy. I just throw it in my pocket or whatever. Or I know they developed their holster that has an attachment specifically for that. Or now we even have 
Um, I actually just got one of these like two or three weeks ago, the snake staff, uh, snake staff systems, the everyday tourniquet, whatever the, the real small slim one that is able to fit into a pocket, um, which I'm told is able to perform the same as like a cat tourniquet would. Um, I don't know. Have you had experience with those or those worth the carry? I mean, they're pretty minimal. Yeah. So a, a couple things I want to, I want to uh, splice out there. So I agree like Lucas, uh, T-Rex arms and a lot of these companies have put out like really cool products for blading control. I do think there's an overemphasis in tourniquets in the civilian population simply because like we kind of derive everything we know about tourniquets from the military. Like that's, that's where all the data comes from is yeah. military application, um, which is great. And we see like that being a very needed intervention in Afghanistan and in the United States as well. Like there are definitely times where that is needed. Um, I think one reason it's overemphasized though, is in Iraq, Afghanistan, and these war zones, our soldiers are wearing body armor. They're almost always when they're shot wearing body armor which means that their torso is relatively protected from gunfire. So you see a high amount of extremity trauma in these shootings because they, you know, they're okay if they take a couple to their rifle plate, but then that one round goes through their, um, their artery and you have that. And then you need to use a tourniquet. Same with, you know, bomb blasts, bodies relatively protected, but you can get amputations of legs and arms and all of that stuff. In civilian populations, we see a completely different injury pattern. Um, you know, unless you're at the range and there's, you know, an ND or you go down range and get shot yeah, or something and you're in your kit. Um, most of us, when we're in these situations, we're not, you know, they're they're not shot when they have body armor on. They're they're, you know, school kids or an office building or you know even gang violence is they're getting shot and your biggest mass is your torso. So that's mm -hmm. where we see most of the hits there. So I encourage people like tourniquets are great. If you can carry it, great. Um, but like packing gauze, in, in my opinion, is going to be a more versatile tool, at least in this environment, because that's your junctional sites. That's base of the neck, armpits and groin, where you can have these massive bleeds, but you can't intervene with tourniquet. You can just pack it with, with gauze. Yeah. Um, the second part of that is the snake staff and, uh, you know, I, I got sent a couple of them to do uh, uh, reviews a while back. I've got some videos out on them. I am not impressed by them. Um, you know, okay. it's, I, I did, I did what I'll say, and I hate it when people say this to me, but I'm going to say it anyways, is that they're better than nothing. So if that form factor is the difference between you carrying it or not carrying it, yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure, yeah. Because like, you know, they, they, can and do work. Um, I think the problem is, and what you see with the narrower tourniquet, and they, they have some justification for it, so I totally get that, but like you have higher occlusion pressures, which, mean, which means you have to put more force on that tourniquet, which means more pain, more tissue breakdown, those yeah. issues on top of it to get the bleeding to stop. And in my testing, like it works on the arm pretty well. Uh, the second you put it on a meaty thigh, especially, you know, the uh, uh, corn-fed... <laughs> Iowa American <laughs> farmer, uh, yeah. you know, that got his leg cut, cut off in an auger. And then you add a layer of car hearts on top of that. You're going to have a much harder time with it. And I did have some failures in my very non-scientific testing, um, that I did. So I personally don't carry the snake staff. Um, I'm really excited to see that the company is like addressing the issue and making a tourniquet, not for the military, but specifically for, um, uh, the civilian population, which I think is great, but 
personally, I'm going to wait for, you know, Gen 2, Gen 3 Gen to, come out before, to come out yeah. before I actually really kind of throw my lot in with them. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good concept. Um, it's like you said, it is better than nothing, um, which I I agree with your perspective that it, it is it's one of those things where people are like, well, it's better than nothing. And I feel like it. You, that's like a it's like a step above. I'll use my belt as a tourniquet, which I also right. cringe at when people tell me that. And I'm like, well, do you carry a gun? And they go, yeah, you know, like, here's my you know, I carry a clock. I'm like, well, then you're not going to use your belt as a tourniquet because scuba webbing is not going to let you make that into a tourniquet it's just like be more realistic be honest with yourself here um so you know and and there are other ways and there's companies that make holders for things like the cat uh or i think we're on gen 7 for the cat tourniquet which has pretty much become like the the gold standard of tourniquets people can carry i'm always surprised at how many other ones exist out there i that i that people aren't aware of the rat there's you know a ratcheting one there's there's all kinds of stuff out there and the cat is just the easiest I think to use or to teach people to use. So I think that's why it's caught on so quickly. Um, yeah. I like, like for everyday carry, if you want something that's a little bit slimmer, I like the um, soft T wide uh, or what do they call it now? They could just call it the SOF tourniquet. I think now uh, is the newest generation. And that's because you can flat fold yeah. it. So it doesn't have those brackets that the cat uh, gen seven has that come mm-hmm. up on either side that like catch shirts. There's no Velcro on it. So you can fold that down very, very flat um, and get a very small form factor. And it's still Committee for Tactical Combat Casualty Care recommended. So it's still evidence-based. It's been around for almost as long as the cat, Um, but you can get it much smaller. Its downsides are is that it's a little bit harder for upper extremity self-application. You kind of have to jam your arm into your side or like put put it on a wall, which Sounds great in training, but when you have a broken humerus from that, you know, five, five, six round going through your bicep, the last thing you want to do is jam your arm on a, in a wall to get the tourniquet right. tight. Um, but, but that's, that's my recommendation for like EDC. And that's what I, that's what I'll carry with me. Um, even though like I use cats in every other aspect of my, my job in life. Um, that's what I have on me. Yeah. So, so what do you, when you leave the house, what do you carry in terms of like, just not even not for work necessarily, like personal, uh, what do you carry with you in terms of medical? And I guess, how do you carry it? Cause I think that's everyone's big question. I, and I kind of, I know there's a lot of ankle kits out there and a lot of guys jump towards that. Um, I don't know how I feel about it personally. Um, I don't carry one that way. I, uh, have a cool little, like, I, I always call it, it's like a dad wallet, you know, from it's a live the creed kit. And everyone, when you say dad wall, everyone knows their dad had like this, like two inch thick leather wallet that they would take out when they got in the car. Mine still does for some reason. I don't know why, um, but it, it works and it's got, you know, gloves and it's got gauze and it's got a, uh, a tourniquet in there, which I carry a cat usually, or the, now the snake staff. Um, but I mean, I'll just get, you know, fit that in a pocket. So what do you, what do you carry when you leave the house? It's kind of evolved over time. So for a while I was really hardcore into the ankle kits and I still have a couple that I can throw on, you know, when a lot of the kind of civil unrest was going on a couple of years ago, like I was, I was living in Denver. Um, and oh, yeah. it was one of those things where it was like, you know, I just want a little bit this, more. Yeah. I want a little bit more on me. So like when I know I'm kind of going into a sketchy situation or I've got my family with me or, you know, just, I'm unsure I'll throw on one of those. Um, I, I've got the live the creed uh, pocket trauma kit, which I've you know used for years. Um, I've gone away from 
uh, uh, cargo shirt shorts. Uh, so that kind of loses the ability to really put that in your pocket. So I've got some in the waistband stuff I'll do, but what I've been doing recently more so is just taking a thing of quick clot gauze and throwing it in my back pocket. Um, because what I found was that if it was too big and too hard to carry, I just wouldn't do it. Right. And, you know, and that's kind of the balance everybody needs to take is like, it's great to have all this extreme stuff, but like, if you, if it's uncomfortable, you're going to stop, uh, because chances yeah. are like you can get through your entire life without pulling your gun out or your, or your medical kit. So, you know, finding that balance. So I've got, you know, a, a kit on my backpack, a full kit. I've got uh, my full SWAT kit in my car, you know, all of that. But then on me, I'll usually have a piece of gauze unless I know I'm in kind of a weird situation. And then I'll, I'll go with a ankle kit. I really like the dark angel ankle kit is kind of my favorite because it's pretty minimalist and packed down. Um, and then when things were really dicey, I had the warrior poet society ankle kit, but like that one, you better be wearing bell bottoms because it's freaking huge. It does. It looks like ankle weights that you would like put on for like aerobic exercises. It's like, you know, my mom used to have them when I was a kid growing up and I was like, I'd, yeah, I'd strap on my legs and just struggle to walk. And when I saw that kit, I was like, well, you can fit in a lot, you, you know, a lot of crap in there, but like, damn, I don't know that with the way, you know, men's jeans fit today, unless you're like a dad and you just do, you know, super loose fit, uh, boot cut. I don't know. That's really going to work out for you. Um, yeah. And, and I know what you mean with the live the creed kit. Cause I, I had it in my back pocket. We were driving back from Pennsylvania and I remember getting out of the RV, I riding, uh, in the passenger seat, I get out and go, man, why does my, like my, my whole left side, my hip, my ass, everything was just like pain. And I was like, Oh, that's right. I'm, I've been sitting on this rock for the past, like two and a half, three and a half, whatever it was hours before we stopped. And it did not make the rest of the journey home with me. I just took it out and left it, you know, on the table in the RV till we got back and, the comfort thing's big. We talk about it with firearms. If you, you, you said it right, it's not comfortable. It's probably not going to come with you all the time. And that kind of defeats, right. Defeats the purpose behind, yeah. you know, this whole endeavor. Uh, and, and I, I wish there was a better way to do it. Um, I don't really want to do the whole man satchel thing. I think that's a little played out uh, and kind of obnoxious, uh, but I will say, you know, I carry a four person blowout kit in my car. I have like one of those crappy panels off Amazon that you can just Molly stuff to. And it absolutely blows my mind when people get in my car, they're like, Oh, what is all this? I go, well, that's a first aid kit. And they go, why do you need all that? I'm like, cause it's a first aid kit for like more than just paper cuts. Uh, and as soon as you start explaining all of it, they, it's like, people think you're weird for having it. It's like, there's like a stigma with carrying something like that. I'm like, this could save your life. If we were to get into a car accident right now with you in my back seat, this could save your life. It's, it's, it's this weird attitude. And I see it on like my comment section all the time is people like have this, this feeling that if they haven't needed something in their life, that mm -hmm. there is no reason anybody needs it. And like, you know, and it's all a personal choice, right? I'm not going to sit there and force somebody to carry a firearm that doesn't want to, or a medical kit that doesn't oh, want absolutely. to. Because ultimately those people are just a liability come come a weird situation uh but at the same time like it, it's this thing it's like well i've never needed that so why do you and it's more than like the tactical situations like i've been a paramedic a long time like we don't see that many gunshot wounds honestly like it happens we see shootings like mm -hmm. you know we go to them and stuff but like way more often with this like massive bleeding and stuff it's like it's the motorcyclist like that's the biggest example i can talk about is like you know, a motorcyclist goes over on the side, like it's so easy for their leg to get sheared off. 
And we've had a ton of saves in like our canyon up here from motorcyclists, you know, going all over and a bystander throws on a tourniquet. We had one of our trauma surgeons like right there applying his tourniquet and stuff. You know, we see it pretty regularly where a bystander makes the difference for somebody uh, in these situations. And it's still rare. It's still unlikely. But like you might see it, um, you know, construction is another one, you know, or, you know, plate glass. Like we had a, a delivery man um or somebody he was delivering pizza and somebody inside was very very excited to get the pizza you know weed is illegal in colorado That's uh, let me remind you so they were super excited so they like run down the stairs and they tripped on the last stair and they put their arm through the glass window you know there and severed their arteries and Jesus. the pizza man like as their arms through the pizza man's like grabbing their wrist and holding direct pressure and like that's what it took so you know we in the tactical community, as you put it earlier, it's like it, it's we get really gung ho about the shooting, about the the tactical stuff, the CQB stuff. But like a lot of this is like mundane accidents. Uh, and, and I think it's important to, you know, not lose sight of that. Yeah, no, it, it it's never it, well, I want to say never, but it's usually not the things that, that you're preparing for. It's it's like. Murphy's law has a, has this, this really just bastard way of finding the things that you're not prepared and planned for. And, and that's what you end up dealing with, you know? Um, and I'm sure with your experience, you've seen probably some pretty hellacious, uh, stuff or, or just very awkward, I'm sure as well, you know? Uh, and people don't, uh, and I, I don't know, and this is my opinion, but just like from a societal standpoint, I think that we're just very used to being taken care of. Uh, you know, whether that's governmentally speaking or now it feels like kids are staying at home until they're like in their mid thirties. Um, and then their parents are just cool taking care of them. And, uh, and you know, I, like I said, I teach marching band, I teach high school kids and I can definitely tell a large difference from when I like early two thousands when I was in high school till today and how some of these kids just do not respond well when they're, they have to take care of themselves, uh, that accountability yep. piece. And it, for that reason, people are just, they, they there's like, maybe it's because we were in the United States. Right. And like you said, we have a really well built out, uh, emergency system and, and things like that. Um, it, it's that, uh, I don't know, man, it, it, I, the, the ignorance, I guess, of, of all the things that could happen and why you should be better prepared, uh, for what may happen and just be more realistic about how you see the world. Right. I think, you know, and it's tough because like, you know, so in EMS, we've got HIPAA laws, so we don't advertise what we do. People ask me all the time to do like body cam footage or like, you know, show us going on calls. And like, I can't, I legally can't. I'd love to show people what we do every day, but like. No, thank you. I didn't, I, I, I hearing about it is one thing, seeing it. Uh, <laughs> but like, so that's the thing is like, people have no idea and people assume that the news is going to cover what's going on in their community. And the news only covers it when they hear about it. And most of the time they have no idea what's what's going on. Like our SWAT teams um, in this region are going out probably three to four times a week. Um, you know, we we are going out a lot for, you know, and people like to rag on, you know, I the police departments up here are pretty freaking solid. Um, in, in my opinion, they're like, we're not going after like these low level drug dealers. Like we're going after like murder suspect cartel members and bomb makers that moved here from Nebraska and, you know, devil homicide, you know, uh, just killed their kids inside their house. And people just yeah. don't, they don't hear about it. 
Um, and that makes people believe that those things don't happen. You know, we're in a pretty affluent city up here and things happen all the freaking time. You know, our search and rescue is going out three or four times a week. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard because people don't see it and we don't advertise it in our jobs, you know, as I'm a walking contradiction because I run a social media channel as a paramedic, but like a vast majority of my coworkers that are not me are very silent professionals and they're going about their work and they don't talk about it to their family and nobody's the wiser and society's that much safer. But the, the downside of that is like you were saying is they just don't see it. They don't realize that these things are going on and there is no difference between them and the person that horrible thing just happened to. Yeah. So, well, so, and not to, to jump gears too, too much here, but I did want to ask, because you meant, you mentioned the search and rescue component. Um, and a couple of weeks back, uh, I had, uh, Trey on talking about disaster relief work he did during the hurricanes in Arkansas. Um, so do you guys get attached and dispatched for that kind of work too? Or, or what does that look like, um, with the search and rescue piece? And are you guys part of the actual searching or is it kind of, Hey, wait till we have something. And then you guys are, are sent out just to, uh, you know, conserve and utilize resources. Um, I imagine there's probably quite a bit of that, like you said, given, uh, just the Nate Colorado hiking, skiing and and all that stuff. Yeah. I, so our team is attached every time the search and rescue team goes out, we go out with them. Um, and that's basically because they all have like a modicum of medical training, but it's all pretty basic. And their primary role is searching. So we will search with them, but they're not giving like me as the medic a grid and saying, go search this, yeah, uh, this area. We go with them, we hike with them, we'll go in, but we're, we're just there for, you know, the patient, whoever they find, or God forbid, if one of them, uh, them falls out or something on the trail, then we can, we can take care of them as well. Um, so for us, like a lot of times it's just unprepared hikers. Um, you know, they start a trail that's pretty hard and they wander off the trail, go pee and then, you know, don't come back or, you know, like even something as simple as like a sprained ankle, like a sprained ankle, isn't a medical emergency anywhere except, you know, the top of a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado, where a thunderstorm is going to come in at three o'clock and blow you off the face of the earth. You know, then that sprained ankle becomes a big emergency. Pretty big issue. Yeah. Exactly. So in the, in the, um, uh, the sort team, like we're attached there as a ground contingent. And then our helicopter is brought in very regularly in my full-time job. Um, just because that's oftentimes the fastest way to get somebody out. Uh, you know, the, like the EMS, uh, district that I'm in, like it goes all the way back to the continental divide, which lights and sirens is a three and a half hour drive via ambulance, but it's only a 25 minute helicopter trip. So, We'll go out, we'll pick up SAR members if we need them to do special rescue stuff. We'll go take them to the scene. Um, we'll do a lot with them in in that aspect. So like, uh, I think it was oh, over a year ago now, we had a hunter go down in the Raywall wilderness, like which is middle of nowhere, three hours from civil- civilization. Um, and it was going to take the rescue team about three hours to get up there. We We flew in about probably a half a mile above him on the mountain. They let me, um, a sort medic and a Sartek off the helicopter, get down to the hunter who was having a, a massive heart attack. And we ended up sitting with him for almost four hours on the side of the mountain until the Blackhawk hoist ship could take us off the mountain and get us down to the hospital. So yeah. kind of mix of everything. 
so how do you so with with stuff like that in such remote areas and things like i mean in that instance how did that hiker or i'm sorry it was a hunter you said how mm-hmm. did they even did they call out on their own or were they with somebody or i mean like because cell reception gets spotty out there uh not spotty uh, it's inexistent like you okay, step into yeah. the rocky mountains and it's gone um so i i cannot promote the garmin in reach enough uh like that device is the best rescue device on the planet as far as i'm concerned um so he had he had two things going for him so one he knew that they had a signal and which is also i didn't know it before this call but three gunshots in rapid succession is a call for help uh universally know that either yeah (laughs) so because like you know taking three shots at an elk or something is relatively rare you're not usually going to hear three shots back to back to back um for a lot Mm -hmm. of those you might but it's pretty rare so he shot three times with his rifle started having chest pain his buddy started getting to him and then he hit the sos button on his garmin in reach which automatically sends out the lat longs to exactly where he is to a centralized dispatch center who then gets in contact with the the appropriate authorities in whatever area he's in. Um, so it's a really easy way to get help coming to you. That's amazing. And I'd just like to point out to people listening, it is another reason why it pays to have good quality gear. Because uh, yeah. I can only imagine the number of people that would look at something like that. And I'm assuming Garmin makes fantastic stuff but it is pricey because it works really fucking well. And that's just how yeah. it works with good kit. <laughs> uh, but it, it never surprises me the people in our space, right. That are like, Oh yeah, but I just don't have the money. So I'll get something that's just as good, you know, or like we said earlier, it's better than nothing. It's like, yeah, until it doesn't work, you know, yeah. like, yeah, a flare gun is great. If there's somebody who can see it, but like you said, you're three hours from civilization. What are the chances that even, even if they can see it, are they going to be able to get a signal out? If that person yeah. doesn't have, you know, something they can reach out. It's Colorado. You're going to start the biggest forest fire ever with flare and uh, you're okay, still not going to get rescued. So, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's and like the Garmin in reach. I think it's like 350 and you can get their model down. That's just like the cube without the screen for like mm-hmm. 200 bucks. So like it's expensive, like and, and I get it like you're deciding between putting food on your table and buying a Garmin in reach. That's a hard decision to make. Um, but for a lot of people that is an affordable expense. Yeah. I feel like uh, you can afford to go big game hunting out in the Colorado wilderness. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can probably find somewhere in your, but I would hope you would find right. Some, something in your budget that would allow for that. I would hope. Yeah. And it's for like everything I take it skiing. I take it trail running. Um, you know, I take mine, I take mine on my helicopter with us. Like I have it on my chest rig because it's one of those things that it's like, you know, worst comes to worst, I always have that on me. And so, so that tool, like I think out of any commercial device, I have seen the Garmin in reach save more lives than anything else on the market. Uh, wow. Just, just in the years it's been out, you know, we get it all the time where somebody gets injured, a mountain biker gets injured and they call with that. That's pretty, that's, that's outstanding. I mean, so for anybody listening, I'm not paid, I'm not paid by Garmin. Yeah. They, I, I reached out and asked them to pay me and they, said absolutely not so i have i have no relationship with them but like that one the the spot is pretty good too um but like garmin's kind of the name brand i i yeah so not for lack of trying but yeah not not a paid endorsement of (laughs) right i mean but yeah garmin is the brand i mean i've been out doing land nav stuff with buddies and and they have the 
I forget what I I don't know their model names. It's hard for me to keep up with everything, but uh, he had one on his uh on his, again on his chest rig, you know, and we just check you know lat long every I don't know little bit and just confirm we were still you know where we approximately needed to be to get to where we were going and they make great stuff. Um, yeah, and, and you know, and it's always funny to me because I have friends that they're really into hunting, you know, Oh, I'm going to go uh, backpacking. I'm going to go, you know, get whatever elk or whatever, you know, exotic deer or something is here in Michigan. We basically just have white tail and that's it. And guys always, uh, you know, dream about, Oh, I'm going to go to Montana or Colorado. I'm going to get, you know, whatever. I'm like, cool, man. That's, that's badass. Like, I think you should totally go do that. And then let me have someone to get back because that is not what I'm about. Uh, it's just not my thing. But then they're also the guys are like, oh, yeah, I don't know. They him and haw over buying the gear and stuff that it takes to do that. You know, things like uh, clothing, you know, you talk about regulating body heat and hypothermia. And I was actually one of my buddies took the medical course uh, this weekend at the HTA uh, uh, range day event. And was I was actually shocked. And so was he, obviously, when he found out just from sitting in a puddle for an extended period of time, hypothermia sets in and and, you know, how quickly that can just destroy you and uh you know, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And like it, for a lot of these people, like, you know, it might not be, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. So I get the whitetail thing, uh, yeah. uh, there I grew up, you know, yep. going to, you know, Joe blows farm and sitting in a tree stand and going home. But like, you know, that stuff out here, it's, it's a different story. And, you know, it's one thing to have layers and be okay in the cold weather when you're not injured, but you get injured, you get poikilothermic pretty quick and you become the temperature of the environment pretty quick when you're, when you're hurt, you've assanguinated, like had, had a lot of blood loss, you know, all of these things. And like that, somebody reaching you in five hours versus 12 hours could very well be the difference between life and death. And that's really what the Garmin InReach gives you. Everybody likes to point to the cell phone. Well, we go with the cell phone. I, iPhones have the new satellite uplink thing. Like cell phones great. are great. Like I, I'm not ragging on them because like I use my cell phone to not get lost on trail runs. I have, you know, the all trails going and the map downloaded, but mm -hmm. once you're lost, I mean, cell phones have a very limited like ability to help you. Uh, their battery dies quick, especially in cold environments. You know, they're, they're very dependent on cell service, even, you know, they're getting better now, but like, you know, they're just not, they're not the thing. Well, they're not designed for that. It's they will no. work for some of those applications, but that's the same thing when we talk about, uh, you know, everyday carry flashlights. People go, "I don't need a flashlight. I have my cell phone," and it's like, that's a joke, right? I mean, come on. Like, if you drop your keys, you could use your cell phone, sure, but you look at like an actual something like a, a cloud defensive, you know, like a, a handheld light built to out to put out serious candela, and then you look at your cell phone and you're like, "Come on, let's." You know, your cell phones is it, it to me it's a convenience tool it's good for like working out the tip for your dinner bill it's good for you know wasting type or wasting time while you're pooping like great cool but uh i don't and i used to you know count that as part of like my edc and stuff that i get built in yes i carry it but i don't rely on it for anything um for a lot of the reasons you just said the battery life and how many times you know people want to say that the iphone has the satellite uplink cool feature right but how many times do we all get pissed at our cell phone want to throw it across the room because it just never seems to work as well as it's advertised to work, uh, let alone yeah. when it's not the newest generation and they have to do that update that kills your battery faster to make you buy a new one. Like, yep. good job, guys, but I think you missed the mark. Uh, be better. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
when we're looking at, you know, this overall discussion of preparedness, that's really, I think that that's the first thing I always tell people, honestly, um, you can use your cell phone for a lot of stuff, but don't rely on it for, you know, life-saving or, uh, as a critical link. Uh, and as I say that I'm thinking out like to myself, like I need to do better. Like I carry like a ham radio with me, but, uh, in my car, but you just, you have to have more than one option and have it be reliable. Uh, otherwise things like we're talking about here, right. Medical care is, you're just not going to reach anybody. Um, your cell phone may go down. Everyone wants to talk about shit hits the fan. Well, if your cell phone tower is down, how inconvenient is it? Let alone if it's a life-saving, uh, or, or life-threatening, I'm sorry, situation where you can't call 911, you can't get help. You can't get anyone to reach you. Uh, it, it, it just, it, it exponentially gets worse when you build that weak link in your chain of planning or whatever you want to call it. And that's, that's the thing that fails is your cell phone. Yeah. That can't be how it works. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, when, when you've been out on these calls and things, uh, I guess, what are some of the most common issues that you run into? Um, when you're talking about people that go out, I know we just talked about that hunter and you know, how the garment has saved so many people and stuff. What are are there some pretty common missteps, at least with people going out hunting and doing adventure activities and stuff like that, where people are just not, they're not doing the right things while going out there, kind of taking their life in their own hands? Yeah. You know, we see a couple things is one, like not telling anybody where you're going. Like that's such a simple thing is telling your spouse, your friend, you know, your neighbor, like, Hey, I'm going to go to this trailhead. It's going to be this long. Like I expect to be done in this amount of time, but it might take me longer. And like that right there, you have somebody that if they don't see you come home, like they're going to call for help. And that's going to be a huge time saver because they know what trailhead you went to. They know what area you're in. Like it just narrows the field down uh, uh, hugely instead of, you know, the local police canvassing the bar thinking you might be passed out there instead of, you know, driving up the mountain. Um, So that's a big thing I, I see people do is like somebody calls it in. They're like, I just don't know where he is. And nobody knows. And that's three days later. And they're like, oh, we finally like we got the subpoena for his his phone records. And it pinged off this tower at this time, like five hours into this wilderness area. So like that's one thing we see a lot of like a, a lot of tourists here in Colorado, like they don't understand that we're a high desert and that you have temperature differences. So like, they're like, oh man, it's a 85 degree day. I'm going to go hiking in my jean shorts and my mm-hmm you know, moisture wicking top and we're going to hike this mountain and they forget that we're automatically at 5,500 feet. Uh, let alone you drive up to the mountains and you're even higher. Their prop might not be in the best shape. And now the hike's taking them three times as long night hits. And now you have, you know, sub 40 degree weather in the mountains where it was 80 degrees during the day. And you, you're just, they're not prepared for it. They don't have flashlights. Like you said, they're yep. not prepared to potentially spend the night. They get lost, disoriented. They don't have the right tools. Um, and then, of course, somebody gets panicked. And the first thing I swear they all do is they run through a river. Is <laughs> they, get, they get scared and they just want to get out. So they run straight through the river. And now they're soaking wet. And those jean shorts are pure cotton. And there's no insulation once cotton gets wet. So you, you have all sorts of, of environmental issues there. Um, so I think environmental is probably the biggest thing we see is people that just aren't prepared for it, get lost, get cold. And they didn't even realize that was a possibility. Yeah. 
I mean, do you, do you have recommendations around some of that? Like the clothing piece, at least uh, I know like Gore-Tex is thrown around a lot or Marina wool is mentioned for a lot of applications as well too, because of its uh, the, the temperature regulating. Um, but is there anything that you personally use or have seen be really effective in that regard? I like, I swear by wool. Um, like it's yeah. not the same wool that your grandparents wore. Uh, <laughs> like wool now, like, especially like smart wool and all these products, like, Wool is antimicrobial, so it doesn't stink too much. It insulates almost as well wet as it does dry um, there. And uh, it really does regulate temperature very well. It's like it's freaking super fabric. So I, I wear merino wool socks and yes. shirts anytime I'm going like trail running, uh, anything like that, just because I believe in, I wear that like on the helicopter, because if the helicopter bursts in, into flame, when we crash like, like that, uh, one fabric, that's not going to melt to my skin and make it worse. Like it's got some built in fire resistance to it. So like, there are so many advantages to that. So what I tell people is like plan, like, look at the forecast, look at when you're going hiking and then look the next night and then have layers to, uh, do both. Like you don't need to carry like a tent and a sleeping bag, but like have a plan to spend the night because especially back here, it's easy to get lost um, even for experienced hikers. So ha have a plan. If you're going to spend the night, carry a Mylar blanket, carry layers that when they get wet, they're not going to be completely trash and then have something you can throw on, whether that's a windbreaker, um, you know, a sweatshirt, just some, some layer that you can add to your clothing to make it a little bit better and easier. Yeah. And the socks are a big one. I mean, I mean, for one, the, the, I find them extremely comfortable. Uh, it's not yep. something originally that I, when someone told me about it, I was like, I'm not wearing wool socks. You're freaking out of your mind. And when I actually learned the benefits and then tried them and experienced it, I was like, wow, I'm, I felt really dumb. You know, uh, my feet didn't sweat in excess the way I thought that they would. Um, they weren't, uh, I mean, they are thicker, right? It's just nature of the material. Right. But it wasn't uncomfortable, especially if you buy your footwear, understanding that that's what you're going to do. If you're going to be out, you know, in boots and out for extended periods of time. But uh, also just thinking, like you said, having one material on you that wouldn't melt in a fire. Um, you can do a whole heck of a lot with burns on other parts of your body. Right. But your feet, if you can't move, if you're not if you're not mobile and you only have one pair of feet, right? Obviously, uh, you're in a whole hell of a lot of a hurt because then you're basically just stuck. If you can't walk, you can't move, you can't get to a safer location. That's huge. And people don't, they don't take those steps. They think like comfort and they don't take the next steps beyond that to kind of think what, you know, what could this look like downstream in, in certain environmental and situational implications, right? Yeah. And like, I, so like my, all my elk hunting gear is like a first light, I think it is. And yeah. like, they make some of the last, like all these companies are going to synthetic, which is fine, but I just look for that wool and they've got their wool pants and they've got wool shirts and their wool, uh, long underwear. And like that, that's my go-to for anything like where we're spending nights in the winter. Uh, I love that stuff. And so first, like I've heard of them, I think they were things like Meat Eater. I was watching Stephen Rinella's show, right, which I love. Um, and I think Sitka Gear is another one. I don't know if they've gone over to yep. synthetic, but just to give people an idea, what does that kind of cost for like a whole setup of that? And then also, what kind of experience oh. do you have? Because usually, when you spend the big money, though, it is nice to know, right, that it lasts years and years. You don't have to replace it. It kind of takes the sting out of buying, right? 
Yeah, I think for like the full getup, like it's unfortunate. Like the cost for like first light is unfortunate. Um, if you're anything like your first farm police officer, you can go on Proform and you can get like a Proform fifty percent off first light, which is like the only reason I own first light gear. Oh damn! Is because okay. I got fifty percent off of it, and not because yeah, yeah. I'm you know an influencer as much as I hate that word, but um, so you can get that. But if uh, you don't get that, I think like the whole setup is like five hundred bucks for a set of clothes and. I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure. I'm guessing the people listening to this podcast probably aren't, you know, the bougie Gucci bag kind of people that are used to spending, you know, 500 bucks for a Supreme shirt. So that might hurt a little bit. No, I mean, actually, I was expecting you to come in somewhere close to like fifteen, seventeen hundred dollars uh, because I've, I've, if I've you seen go like the stuff. jacket and stuff, yes. Yeah. But if you're just the wool stuff, nah. Okay. And that's so, that's actually kind of man. I mean, but, and you're probably right uh about that with the crowd that listens but you do definitely and i know this because i met a bunch from this weekend are the people who will spend 250 and 300 on some fucking cry g3 pants uh just because they look sweet and i'm sure they're probably comfortable i've never worn cry <laughs> i'm not that bougie uh but you know when you look at your 300 pants and whatever the battle top costs like they'll, they'll spend 500 on that all day long and yeah it's comfortable and it's got all the good pockets and all well, thing for your sunglasses on the sleeve because you got to put your Oakley somewhere, right? But uh, I don't know that that's actually going to environmentally do a whole lot for me other than help me blend in if it's like multi. Cries, cries are uh, cotton. Like I, I've got a pair downstairs we use for some of our SWAT stuff and they're they're cotton. So they're great pants. Nothing wrong with them, but like for a backwoods environmental protection standpoint, absolutely not. Oh, you just broke so many hearts. <laughs> you Upset to hear. <laughs> like, oh, I've been saving up all this money for cry and now I find out that it's not even going to help me. Uh, well, I mean, it will, but just the amount of people that want to go, you know, spend all their time in the woods. Like, hey, my buddy's a bunch of shit. They signed up for uh, Blake Water on uh, Instagram. He taught a small unit tactics course. And I had two of my buddies sign up and they like packed 60 pound rucks and everything. Like, oh man, I'm so excited to go hang out in the woods. And then uh, we got, we had to walk up like a pretty huge ass hill to get to registration in the morning. And dude, I think we made it like 250 or 300 yards uphill and they're like dying. Thank, thank God somebody stopped to give us a ride up the hill. And uh, I was like, dude, you guys signed up for this shit. Like I'm just wearing a plate carrier and like I didn't have any ammo because it was a dry CQB class. But I'm like, you guys signed up for this. You, you think it's going to be great and everything. Good good luck. So there are those people that love getting in the woods. And then to find out that, you know, some of that big Gucci stuff you see on the Internet is not actually that beneficial out in the elements. Somebody's heart's going to be broken. I know for sure. I mean, it looks cool, but like, so our, our SAR team, we've got, um, a couple PJs an ex Navy seal. Uh, I think there's maybe a Marsoc Marine on it. Like guys that have, that have done the stuff like that are way more badass than I could ever be. And now they volunteer on a search and rescue team in Colorado. But like, I, I take my cues from what they're wearing and they're wearing off the shelf REI gear. Like they're, they're buying like for hiking. They're not wearing Gucci tactical whatever pants because it's just not meant for that environment like it has it has a use but um i've seen a lot of people like going oh man i forget the brand it's got a fox on it uh i I forget it doesn't it doesn't matter but like like that it's it's not tactical you can still get it in like ranger green so if that makes you feel any better but you know getting some of these stuff that are built for the outdoors built to hike and cries chafe like crazy once you go more than two miles in them in my experience Ouch. Yeah, I know. I'm I know. miss me with Man, that. I, 
And you know what? I, I'm just like, I'm slowly digging myself a hole. Like not that cry ever sponsors anybody because you know, they know what they have and they're not about to give anybody free shit. But like, if there was ever an opportunity to get free shit from cry, I don't think I'm going to get it on this episode. Oh, well, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie to people though. I mean, that's yeah. not the best. It's, it, it's about having the best tool for the application. Right. And exactly. If you're rating buildings, then cry is probably what you want. You want comfort, long-term stuff. You know, cotton is great. Cotton breeds. It's really good in that regard. Um, but if you're out doing long-term sustainment work in, in the field and stuff, and th- then it's probably just not the right choice, you know, or have something yeah. else, you know, wear some long johns underneath it or, or something supplemental, but you start stacking layers, it gets uncomfortable for and causes other issues too. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, hey, hey, I'd rather give people the right information and put them in a, in a position to be more successful, um, especially when you're talking about stuff like that does bring in your uh, survivability in some in some instances but agreed at any rate man this has been awesome i really really enjoyed this discussion and i and thank you so much for uh being able to carve out the time and, and be able to sit down while i pick your brain on this because i i find what you do fascinating i think it's great um before we kind of wrap it um if anybody listening just doesn't know where to find you can you just throw out where your social media stuff and things like that is for sure. So my main platform is YouTube. You can find me at uh, Prep Medic on there. Search it and I'll pop right up. Uh, and then Instagram, I'm Prep underscore Medic. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thank you again and uh, stay safe out there and we'll we'll be in touch, man. Well, that was a great conversation. Honestly, very interesting hearing, you know, I, I, and maybe it's just because I'm from Detroit. You know, we don't have like great wild wilderness uh, here and you have to go several hours north uh, and then potentially even up into the upper peninsula of Michigan where uh, the flight medics really would see the kind of, um, I guess, activity, volume of calls, variety of of calls and incidents, right, that that Sam sees. So I thought that was very interesting to hear that, let alone uh, him talking right about the work he does as a SWAT medic. Um, having just done a two-day CQB or day-and-a-half CQB course myself and, and learning the ins and outs and the, the intricacies of how you have to uh, coordinate and work together as a four-man team, let alone if you're attaching a medic um, and, and what that all looks like and how you work around that and how you think through that process and how you would have to then integrate them into your movements and um, you know, safety and security and, and, and things like that. Uh, I find it very cool, very interesting. And I hope you guys do too. You know, um, I personally have, uh, friends that work as EMTs. I have a buddy who, uh, just like I said in the, in the conversation, uh, who has expressed a, a strong interest in becoming a flight medic and the, you know, think, and, and would like to see that be his next step in his career. Uh, so I'm obviously going to send this over to him, but for anybody who is interested, like, I think, you know, just as we're, we're short on first responders in the police and firefighter field, EMT is, is just as important. You know, uh, I would say almost even more so because the number of calls you respond to, the number of incidents you respond to, or just the number of overall situations which require medical attention that don't necessarily always require the intervention of, you know, fire services or police services and things like that. Um, and he, he said it, they call it level zero. I, I don't know if that's a, a universal term or not, but we're basically every single ambulance in that area that responds to calls uh, and, and people in need in that area is not available. 
not because they're on break, not because they don't want to. They literally are all busy. And then you have to pull in resources from other areas of coverage, which, A, takes a lot longer to respond. We talked on this podcast extensively before about police response times and how impactful those can be, right, when we're planning for our own self-preservation and home defense and things. But when we're talking about responding uh, medical assistance, how important that can be. And when we look at how we neglect medical training, how important it is to have some of these skills, not as flashy. It doesn't get the same level of attention. It doesn't, you know, have the same shine to it because, you know, making, you know, reels to, 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 uh, hip hop tracks and, and, you know, trap beats and stuff like that. It doesn't work for medical the way it does for like, you know, CQB and shooting and vehicle interdiction and all this stuff. But in the event that one of those things happens and then something goes wrong and someone's hurt, the medical is always what you reach out to. It's always the person that you're looking for. It's always what you actually need in those scenarios and anything anything else. You know, we talked uh, with Sam here about hunting and hiking incidences. And, and I know there's certainly a lot of people that maybe they, they aren't a active part of the tactical community. And I, I do, I cringe every time I have to say tactical uh, as the... Uh, the name or the label for our, our community, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, but at any rate, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they enjoy, you know, running and, and trail running and hiking and hunting and kayaking, things like that, adventure sports or adventure activities, right? And things go awry, right? You start pushing limits and accidents happen, right? Hey, I want to climb the next biggest hill, the next biggest mountain. I want to do this next thing. And, you know, maybe I'm prepared for it. Maybe I'm not. There's only one way to know for sure. Something happens. You need people like this. So uh, I thought it was very, very cool of him to be able to uh, sit down with me, explain the process, talk about how he got there, what's all involved. And and honestly, it's, uh, you know, it, it kind of brings to light some things, you know, the, the shortage of resources and first responders. It's not just a police officer thing. I know that's the one that gets the most attention in the media because defund the police is such a popularized movement in, in mainstream media. Um, I, I think with that, it's always, it's already, it's a firefighter issue as well, but it goes into medical services. There is a shortage of nurses. As we found out during COVID, there is a shortage of EMTs and, it's just one of those things. We need more people to step up and step into those roles and um, certainly would encourage anybody who's thinking about making that decision. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're, you know, in your college years looking for that next step, or you want to be somebody who is, you know, getting involved and being engaged in these sort of things. This could be a very, you know, fulfilling idea and opportunity. Um, and if you're looking to do something like a SWAT medic, reach out to your local law enforcement, find out what's going on. Just ask some questions, become a reserve officer. I've considered myself. I may, I may look into it. Um, just understanding that it's not, you know, Hey, how am I going to take months at a time off from work to go to the Academy where with a reserve officer, because you are a reserve officer, it is not the same. And there's a, you know, uh, it's a much longer process, but it's over weekends and doing ride alongs and things like that. So, um, just a lot of information here that he shared that was very, very useful and very helpful. And I think you guys, you know, I hope anyways, learned quite a bit from what Sam was able to share with all of us. Um, and these are the kind of guests I really look to bring on, you know, uh, I've said it a bunch of times before, and I will continue to say it because I'm very blessed to make the connections that I do with this podcast. Um, it was very cool this weekend at the HTA event to, um, 
be able to put faces to a lot of the names of people I have interviewed on this podcast and people who I call my friends, you know, uh, Jared from Orion Training Group and uh, and Chance Cooper, who uh, is going to be doing some vehicle work with Guild Solutions and uh, Alex Manor from Leaderless Gentlemen uh, and Tactical Lifters Guild, uh, Blake or, or Blake Water on Instagram, got to meet him. Uh, you know, uh, Dylan, who, who was one of the people that ran the event, um, Ruthless Actual on Instagram and, and, and so many more, right. That I, I can't even, uh, recall, you know, uh, or people that I didn't know and got to meet in person for the first time. But, you know, this podcast has given me the opportunity to learn so much and connect with so many awesome people. And I certainly, certainly include Sam on that list. Uh, and, and we'll hopefully, you know, be in touch with him and be able to do, uh, you know, more with him and, and learn from what he's doing on YouTube. If you guys aren't checking out his YouTube channel, I think you, I really think you should. Um, it's not just one of these, these channels that sits there and talks about medical only, which for some of us gets very boring. I understand medical may not be your, your wheelhouse. It may not be where you have your passion and that's, that's fine. But he actually gets into quite a bit. Um, you get a perspective and a look at a lot of different things that he does for work that a, not, a lot of people in his profession just don't share. And it's not because it's a secret. It's just that they are, you know, the the quiet professionals. So uh, it's very nice to have somebody like him in the community willing to share that information, willing to put it out there and, and to help others and to answer those kinds of questions and bring the information out as well as to share things like we went, we talked through clothing, we talked through tourniquets and just to have that kind of insight from somebody who deals with those things on a more regular basis than we do. I find that very cool. I find that very valuable and I'm glad that, you know, this is just one more medium we are able to uh, utilize to convey that information all out to you. So Again, one more time, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, as much as I did, and we are working very hard to continue to bring really good information and great guests to all of you. If you guys have made it this far, you're still listening, huge, huge thank you to you, Um, and uh, please, if you aren't subscribed, if you aren't following us on whatever platform you're streaming this podcast, please hit that subscribe button, please hit the follow, check us out on Instagram, give us a follow, check out our Patreon page, all of that stuff goes to goes towards helping us do the things we're able to do like the trip we made this weekend that in turn, uh, you know, was able to help support human trafficking awareness and help, uh, you know, and there's just so many things that we do here and with, without your support and things, we just wouldn't be possible. So, uh, again, that's it for this week. You guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Next week's going to be a good one too. Very much looking forward to that, but until next week, folks get out there, work hard, train smarter, and be prepared.